This is Josh Summers, and you're listening to Everyday Sublime, the podcast that endeavors to explore a full-spectrum spirituality. And in today's episode, I'm bringing you a conversation that I had with Amiel Handelsman, who has written a little booklet slash essay called How to Be an Anti-Race Anti-Racist. And as I get into in the talk, you'll hear how I came to meet Amiel, and it was really born out of a conversation I had earlier on the podcast with his colleague, Greg Thomas. And after meeting Greg and now having met Amiel, I would say the two of them have really expanded and um, brought a level of nuance to the way I view and think about this issue of racism in society um, in a way that I'm indebted and very grateful. And um, so I just wanted to bring Amiel on the, on the show and discuss this, this very interesting essay he wrote, How to Be an Anti-Race, Anti-Racist. And the, I would say the, the key of it or the crux of it all is we're getting into why, why does he think, and I agree with him, why is it imp so important to deracialize ourselves? Why is it so important to deracialize our minds and deracialize others as individuals as part of a complementary really a complementary development in our culture that combats racism. So um, I'll, I'll leave that to Amiel, and I hope you enjoy today's talk. In the show notes, I include a link to his book, How to Be an Anti-Race, Anti-Racist. There's also a couple of blogs that um, he wrote, that Amiel wrote, that have been published on Greg's platform, Greg Thomas's website, Tune Into Leadership. So those links are there. I definitely recommend checking those out. And I also just want to acknowledge that this conversation and the ideas within this conversation are very likely to stir up strong thoughts and feelings and views and opinions. And um, in the interest of open dialogue and good faith exchange, I'm very interested in hearing from folks about what you think about these ideas. Do you like the idea of anti-race, anti-racism? Does it raise unanswered questions for you? And if so, what are they? I'm, I'm, I'm very curious to hear what folks will say about this or respond to this with. So um, I look forward to hearing from you. And now, without further ado, I'll bring you Amiel Handelsman. Okay, today I am with Amiel Handelsman. Amiel, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thanks so much for having me, Josh. So we've got a lot to cover. Um, I'm not sure exactly what I'll put as the title of this episode, but I think the word racialization or deracialization is going to be there. Um, and that means we have a lot to talk about. Um, but before we jump into the, the content of what I want to cover with you, I thought it'd be good to sort of set the stage in terms of how I came to meet you, um, which in brief is around how a few podcast guests back, I had your colleague Greg Thomas on, who was introduced to me through a friend. And Greg and I were talking about race, kind of the current state of uh, discourse around race and, and racism in our culture, particularly in the United States. Um, we got into talking about how jazz and specifically the blues idiom has some, um, really some, uh, I'd say some guidance on how to transform uh, some of the the obstacles we're facing right now. Um, and in that interview, Greg at one point walked me through uh, what he was describing as the process of racialization. And at the end of that, he said, this is why I 
call myself an anti-race, anti-racist. Um, which at the time, that was the first time I think I had ever heard that phrase. And even though he was, you know, patiently walking me through why he said this, and it was still like a gong that went off my head. I'm like, I kind of knew what anti-racism was, but the concept of an anti-race, anti-racist kind of just did a, a number on my head, and I, I, I was just kind of stunned by it a little bit. But then uh, I, I think shortly after the podcast got published, you reached out to me directly um, and uh, introducing yourself, saying that you were a colleague of Greg's through work and that you had written a short book or an e a longer essay called How to Be an Anti-Race, Anti-Racist. And as soon as I read that, I realized I, I need to have you on the show too um, because I think you're offering a path or, or a potential path forward through what I would describe as a, a lot of polarization and division in our culture, in our discourse around these topics. And, 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 I, and as a path forward, I see a, a healing dimension to this too. But before um, maybe we jump into these topics, I think anyone watching this or listening might raise an eyebrow around um, just having two nominally white identified individuals um, kind of exploring this topic. And, Absolutely. Um, you know, and, and, and maybe it's just so that we invite people that might raise that eyebrow in, uh, you know, you know, what, how are you coming into this? Like, what, what is, what is your background been in terms of coming into this conversation and why, how would you defend the kind of the, it's not the importance, but the, like the validity of, or the value in what you're trying to bring. Cause I, I see tremendous value in it. And it, it's, I know it's similar to what Greg is bringing forward, but um, just to that eyebrow, what might you start sure. off with? Sure. Yeah. I, I understand the eyebrow, probably two eyebrows. It's hard to raise one eyebrow mm -hmm. and two are probably warranted here. Uh, so for many years, I have been actually, uh, bringing race into the conversation, into my friends and professional networks, really going back 30 years, uh, talking about um, the darker and, um, you know, America's original sin, some of the dimensions of American experience that uh, I don't think we've covered that well in the education that I got and pointing to disparities in wealth and income and, incarceration and police treatment. So I've been in and out of that conversation for a very long time. And it's only in recent years, actually upon meeting Greg, Greg Thomas, that I began to wonder whether an additional way to combat racism is to combat the notion that there are different biological races. And so it's really important to say up front that uh, this is not saying uh, let's stop talking about COVID disparities between different groups or let's stop talking about wealth and income disparities. Let's keep talking about those. Let's do so without the falsehood that what we're describing are biologically and genetically different groups. It's a concept we don't need and as I've looked into this, 
It's a concept that actually is the foundation for racism. And so, I, you know, I've been in these conversations now for since I wrote that piece and some other pieces on Medium where people are raising a lot of very valid questions. Hmm. What about this? What about that? And so we'll get through some of that. But the, the core point here is that the very notion that there are distinct biological races where there are people that look different on the outside and you can tell on the outside what's inside and then make generalizations about that. This was invented to justify slavery. So if folks want to say, well, let's keep the same concept and use it for good, you know, you can make that argument and I'll disagree. But once we realize where it came from, I think maybe eyebrows might drop a little bit. And the more I talk about how actually physically ill I get, when I see these studies of skulls that supposedly showed how certain groups were more beautiful than others or more intelligent than others, it was all about race. People might go, oh, when he's objecting to biological race, he's actually objecting to racism. And yes, he happens to have light skin and be identified as white, for sure. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, the word race, the term racism, can 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 include or refer to a whole variety of different dimensions of how that concept that 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 biological that false biological concept has kind of refracted and permeated through society culture political structures and through our history and and as i think what you're saying is that if if there's a fear that if and i've heard this myself that if we array if we take away the the concept of race or, or uh, kind of reveal that over and over again for the, the falsehood that it is, that it will simultaneously erase uh, cultures of, of historical experience and, and erase the legacy that we're trying to grapple with. Yeah, let's go, let's go with all of those objections. And I almost want to argue in favor of those objections for a minute because I think they're so important. Mm -hmm. So one, one thing to say is that there are a number of people who, who are objecting to race and racial essentialism who aren't saying what I'm saying. What they're saying is, let's stop breaking down poverty based upon these categories right? That's, mm -hmm. yeah. We overemphasize slavery and Jim Crow. We overemphasize redlining. Live in the present. Let's focus on the future. So in other words, there are people who are saying the same thing, enough with race, enough with the racial essentialism, who are saying something that, I, that I'm not saying. Yeah. So it's very legitimate to question that. Second of all, we track statistics now based on these U.S. census categories. So it's very understandable to be concerned about eliminating those categories and to stop tracking data by those categories. It's a natural, well, of course, if you eliminate the categories, then how can you track anything? And uh, this is the stumbling block that I've been through for a very long time. Uh, until I came 
upon uh, Dr. Carlos Hoyt Jr.'s book, The Ark of a Bad Idea. And in this book, he says, essentially, why don't, why doesn't the census continue to track these categories, but stop calling, stop asking people, what race do you belong to? Instead, what race do other people identify you with? So we can keep tracking all those things, but we stop categorizing people by this sort of fixed biological quality of who you are and start tracking it based upon how other people see you. And in fact, we're actually more likely to get better data, right? Because what determines discrimination and racism isn't how you consider yourself. It's how other people see you. So why not use those so we can have all the same categories, but name them differently? Mm-hmm. Charts, track the statistics, write the papers, write the news articles, have the conferences, make that topic front and center in our public discussion without fooling ourselves that there are these separate biological races. Right. And so th- as I've been reading your, your work and thinking back through my conversation with Greg, the question I think that I think an audience might have, or someone in the audience might have, is the question why, and and the, and by that I mean why do we need to sort of home in on the concept of race as category, and and get kind of as you say kick it to the curb, in order to help move forward and heal the racial karma, particularly within the United States. So like the anti-racist movement, if if I'm describing it accurately, seems to be emphasizing, trying to address and, and rectify the various forms of inequity and inequality that persist as a result of uh, slavery, Jim Crow, racialization, et cetera. And so why do we then, so that, that's the question, I think, why is it important that people who are concerned about this, this, this ongoing legacy and how to heal it, why, why in your view is it so important to um, shift, uh, shift something in our, in our, I think in our consciousness, in our forms of speech and behavior so that the category of race, not the not race as a topic, which you, you right. really la- right. lay out nicely in your book. So the category of race is the the biological lie that that skin skin pigmentation is significant of anything beyond that. Mm-hmm. Um, um, why is it important to 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 take that away or or sort of fade that out of the equation so that the uh, the very progressive and uh, I would say, healing direction of anti-racism can can move forward. Yeah, I think why is a big question. And it's one I've been asking myself because bringing up this topic doesn't automatically earn one accolades and fans and followers <laughs> because so many different worldviews and parts of the population, at least in the United States, 
just take race, biological race as classification for granted. And in some cases have their own reasons for wanting to not challenge it. And my own day job is as an executive coach doing leadership development. So why in the world am I spending time talking about this? And I could do, you know, what Greg, Greg and I call diversity, maturity, and inclusion work in organizations without taking this on. Hmm. And also have lots of conversations about, let's say, how to reform the police or how to ensure that everybody has a minimally decent life, right? Food, shelter, housing, et cetera, without bringing this up. So it's a really good question. And uh, part of the reason why I'm doing this is it's just so false and so much is based on it. I don't know what the impact would be if, say, 10 million people, which is like 3% of the population in the United States, all of a sudden said, hey, Greg and Amiel and Sheena Mason and Carlos Soy, we agree with you. Like, I don't know what the impact of that would be on some of these challenges and problems. I don't know. Um, so part of the reason I'm speaking up is it just seems like we have something that's so false that so many people depend on and agree with. I think maybe this is an acupuncture point. Hmm. And in a complex system, listeners who have studied the difference between simple systems, complicated systems, and complex systems, we know that in a complex system, you can't determine cause and effect. That is what a complex system is. There's all these loops of causality and there's confusing things going on. So you never actually know the result of what you're going to do. So you do safe to fail experiments where uh, you do an experiment where you're probably not going to lose your life or your career and see what the impact is. So that's what I'm doing now mm-hmm. with how to be an anti-race, anti-racist. I'm doing a safe to fail experiment to open up a conversation and see what opens up. And I will tell you, the more I get into the conversation, the more potential benefits that I, you know, that I see. And just to give a quick example, so you have this Buffalo murder, mass murder, and this killer who wrote this manifesto or whatever it's called, I wouldn't say white paper, that sounds a little too distinguished, whatever it is, and actually draws upon, in addition to replacement theory, a lot of crazy genetic stuff. And what's interesting is that geneticists, even though they should know better, are still pushing race forward in certain ways. And violent white power advocates or white nationalists are picking up on it. So it's a very complex system. Um, so if you were to say, well, why would you want a geneticist? Who cares? Who reads their papers? Well, we now know who reads their papers. And when you, when you refer to that, what what specific, do you have an example of what, how are geneticists or some geneticists complicit in? Hold on, not complicit, but, um, (laughs) their their papers are being read. (laughs) (laughs) Right. They're associated with. They don't want the association for geneticists to be protesting outside my house tomorrow as they of course i didn't mean i and i when i said complicit i didn't mean complicit in the massacre i meant complicit in the categorization of race you know yeah well there 
Yeah, there's a book I'm just forgetting the title. Oh, Fatal, uh, Fatal Invention, Dorothy Roberts' book, really tracks this well about even after the Human Genome Project said, there's only one race, you know, anthropologists told us this 50 years ago, we've done the genetics, we've mapped the human genome, uh, human beings are all 99.99% genetically similar, which I hope everybody takes in for a moment. Just say, high number. Let's just pause there and just say that again. Because it's yes. because because while everyone's pausing, while you're picking a pause, I, I there's a passage from a, a book I read earlier this year by a, a Dharma teacher and psychologist named Larry Ward, um, called America's Racial Karma. And it, he says, We find ourselves living in a racialized world that existed before we were born, and our minds have been conditioned to see race as real. This is your point. This racialized awareness permeates us like a disease in the psyche, cementing our minds to a system of social worth and value by skin pigmentation. It animates our thinking, speech, and behavior individually and collectively. And, and I think this is part of your why, is, is, is what, I'm, what, I, what I am taking from what you're, what you're putting together, is that it's it, essentially we are con, we are we've been socially conditioned from birth with this lens that perceives race as real, and so long as that lens is in place, it will continue to kind of reinforce and 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 tragically reproduce racialized systems. Does that? Yeah, absolutely. And let's just count the ways briefly, because um, I know a moment ago I sounded like I was in an existential crisis about whether to even continue promoting this. Like, why? Why? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, there are a number of reasons that what you're saying is so important. Number one, we do have rising white power movements, and they're all based on this. Mm -hmm. And um, they go after a lot of different groups. So that's number one. Um, number two, uh, in the United States, we have what Greg and others call Black American culture. And it has contributed uh, so enormously to American culture and American history. And appreciating that is, uh, I believe, an anti-racist stance. And yet, when you think that there are Black races, a Black race, it obscures you from the culture. That's why Greg for a long time has been saying culture, not race. And culture is something that can be shared, that we can, um, that migrates across people. Race can't. Okay. So yeah. So open that up a little bit. How does the biological concept of like race and black race versus black culture, how does the black, like that, the obscure what was the phrase you used? Like obscure transmission or the integration or the flow of culture. And I'm really, this is really just piggybacking on Greg's uh, much more extensive work in this area. Um, that when I just think of there as being black people who are separate and they have their own, I'm saying this today, they have their own thing going on and it's their thing. And then I have my thing. I don't actually see how who I am has partially been constructed 
constituted from the culture of Black Americans, mm-hmm. right? Um, art, music, humor, uh, movement. You get into all these other domains that are so much a part of, um, of who we are, I say, as Americans. When I think that there's a fixed category and you, you do your thing over here and I do my thing over here, I don't see the interconnections. And so I don't appreciate how much of the gifts of my life draw upon other cultures. And it's not just Black American culture. Mm-hmm. And why does that matter? Well, we are, you know, Greg will, has a lot to say about that, but it's like, if you appreciate, if I appreciate how as a light-skinned Jewish man have been positively affected by Black American culture, it shifts the way I view this whole racial conversation. I begin to feel gratitude. It's very hard for me to feel pity or noblesse oblige Mm -hmm. or condescension that often infects liberals and progressives Mm -hmm. when I feel so much gratitude. Now, that gratitude doesn't replace um, indignation about disparity. It's an addition to it. Mm. Yeah, and they sort of tied up in that it what you, what you're just saying how i mean you're 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 trying to i think say if we're able to appreciate a, a acknowledge and then appreciate with gratitude the the deep contributions from black american culture in, in as american as a, as formation of american culture that that um that that part in part creates uh, less distance. It starts to bridge a gap that 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 a biological race category would establish. But within that, I might, I mean, as you're we were saying that in the back of my mind, I heard someone's voice say, "If you're saying you've got that culture in you, that's because you've culturally appropriated it." Yeah. Well, you know, the difference is that. Cultural appropriation does exist, and that's when you uh, essentially steal without attribution. Right. It's exploitation, stealing without attribution, profiteering. Honoring, appreciating. I mean, how many generations of Black-identified Americans have wanted to be considered full Americans and be appreciated for what folks did to build the country, not just culturally, but physically, mm-hmm. right? And so this is a way of saying, I, I see that. And it's different from one of the more extreme versions of the progressive postmodern worldview, which says that I see how you have been harmed. True, but partial. Yes. But if all I see is how you've been harmed, that sets up a certain drama triangle dynamic for those who are familiar with that, where you're the victim, I'm the rescuer, and there are these persecutors out there, and my job is to rescue you. And that sets up a fairly inaccurate and demeaning dynamic rather than we're adults in this together. Mm. So part of what we're up to here in that appreciation and, and gratitude 
is to say what I see about someone is the full complexity of their life and their history and their family history, all of it, not just one dimension of it. And my hope would be as people that are caught up with this progressive postmodern worldview see some of the limitations of it and maybe feel like they can't speak or they can't say the right thing or it's just so tiring that there might there's a, there's something to reconstruct here there's a way to see black identified americans fully that goes beyond that very narrow framework so it's offering an additional way to make sense of history and point to a different future so when you speak about this postmodern worldview that I think from my perspective, and I don't have quantifiable data on this, but from my perspective as a someone who went to university, when this postmodern worldview was really seizing the academy, and I was in a field where it was particularly seizing that field in cultural anthropology, when I was in the mid-90s, that was really coming into its heyday, this postmodern world where Essentially, I think the one way of describing that that worldview is a the postmodern recognize that that truths are relative, that 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 truths are are, are dependent on context in terms of how they are defined, and um, as you if you change the context, you get different truths. Therefore, there's this idea of kind of extreme relativity that that all truths are relative, no truths are better or worse than others. But if if there is a uh, kind of a distribution of power. Or a, distri- or a hierarchy of, of outcome, that uh, those distributions are the result of a power imbalance. Um, I'll pause it. Have I kind of summed that up reasonably accurately? I th- yeah, I think I think you have. I think um, it's a worldview that emerged, arguably, you know, in the late '60s, maybe earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, to as a way of responding to the limitations of the modern worldview, which uh, we might think of as classic liberalism, um, where everybody gets a fair shake, we all have the freedom to speak, and um, we have modern science to guide the way, and we're reasonable, rational beings. And there's so much positive that came from that, and the postmodern worldview emerges and goes, but wait, look at look at what that obscures. And there is a lot that it obscures. Um, There's two ways that I think that the postmodern perspective then goes into maybe an unhealthy range. One is that it goes into what I call all aboutism. Hmm. There's what aboutism. There's what aboutism, which came first. All aboutism is when I say American history, for example, is all about white supremacy. It's all about power. Yeah. As opposed to saying there is this really important dimension of American history that we could be talking more about, which I support. That's one way that that kind of gets distorted amongst mature adults. Then there's a second way that it gets distorted amongst less mature 15 to 25 year olds who are at a stage of development 
where they see black and white, not race, but black and white, right and wrong binaries. And then they start to read and hear these progressive postmodern things. And then they, it gets twisted into there's a right way and a wrong way. There's good people and bad people. There's oppressors and there's victims. And what happens then is that a lot of other folks who are not into that look at it and go, this postmodernism thing is terrible. Right. Boy, this is the worst thing that's ever happened. What they're seeing is either the excesses among more mature adults or the interpretation of that worldview by people with less emotionally mature minds. I wouldn't expect anymore. I wouldn't have expected anything more of me. So, um, and then there's these other movements beyond the postmodern that are emerging, which is a different topic. But I want to say something specifically about being in college and noticing this stuff because no, I think we both we both have a few things to say about that. The college, the, the, there was something formative for both of us in college. So, so you go first. Well, I'll say briefly mine, which is relates to this topic. My senior year of college, I took a course called Race and Religion, and in this course, our instructor gave us a piece of writing he had wrote, written called "Race Is a Fallacy," and just the title of it felt like, "Well, I better not make sure anyone sees me." Like this, what is this? Right. And then I read it and it led me to Ashley Montague, the anthropologist who wrote a whole book about that concept. And we talked about it in class and I thought, yeah, this thing is crazy. What am I, what am I thinking? A few months later, the jury in the Rodney King trial came out with a not guilty verdict and Los Angeles was up in flames. And riots. And so very quickly, I went from race is a fallacy and a falsehood to, I guess race actually does matter. It matters. Look what's happening. But here's where my confusion was, as you pointed out. I was confusing the biological classification of race, which is false. It's witchcraft. It's uh, superstition with the fact that racism exists and that millions and millions of people falsely believe in biological race and therefore take actions accordingly. I got those two things confused. And so I threw one out because of the other. And so for 25 years, I gave this very little attention until I met Greg. Yeah, no, uh, you know, I'm, Part of my experience kind of dovetails yours in a little bit in that um, in my first anthropology course in, what was in 92, I think that was the, the year that uh, Charles Murray's and, and Herrnstein's book, The Bell Curve, was published, which I didn't read then, but our professor came in just after it was published and, you know, railed on it <clears throat> for two or three lectures, ripping up the notion of biological race. And, and so, yeah, I, like you, I was like, oh, I never, right. This is a, this whole thing, this, this idea of race is a myth in a sense. And yet seeing the housing situation in New York city, seeing, you know, campus politics with its, with, with the neighborhood in New York city 
and getting involved politically, I could see that the impact, and this is what I think what you just said, is that, you know, just because we can reject the biological category of race doesn't mean we don't, we don't treat very seriously and compassionately the ongoing impact of that lie in terms of how it affects millions of people. Think about client. Yeah, exactly. That's a war, and it sounds like we had somewhat of a parallel experience. In that but to your way. point, but then the point I want to just pick up on before I forget is that right. We we both we both saw the, those two two sides of it early on in college, and yet it's taken. I don't you probably the same amount of time. Same, it was the same year, man. Nineteen ninety two. Right. So then, but it's taken us, and 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 you're ahead of me on this, but. How do we actually integrate those truths so that they become generative of some of, of, of which is, I think, what you're getting at in terms of um, a generative, but by that I mean kind of forward moving um, way of pra- it's a practice that you're ultimately recommending, but it's a practice of how to deracialize one's own mind. And as Greg says, so we can stop racializing each other and start to get off this karmic wheel. <clears throat> but it, it, it's, it has taken the, this much time <laughs> to yeah, just sort of figure yeah. and, and And I think you're kind of very transparent about this, which, you know, I forget, how did you describe that, that the experiment you're running, a false something experiment? Safe to fail. Safe to fail experiment, right. You're kind of prototyping ideas um, in your own search here for a better path forward. Yeah. And I would say the question of how to integrate, that's a very advanced, I'm not there. I'm not at integrating. What I'd say a, a step before that, and we can talk about that because I think it's important. And I just think there's a step before that, which is for folks listening who have a sense that, yeah, there is social injustice and racial injustice. And then the invitation is to try on this mode of there's a lot of different ways to do it but of just uh questioning or thinking anew about the reality or lack thereof of biological race so you try that on for yourself and i've been trying it on for myself and guess what it hasn't made me any less committed to certain things so you got it's there's the great american tradition of pragmatism mm-hmm. Dewey, Rorty, et cetera, which is don't try and figure out in advance what's true or false. You know, try it, see how it works. So the invitation is rather than thinking, well, gee, if I if I take an anti-racist stance, um, I'm going to lose my friends. I'm going to I'm going to I'm no longer going to care about social justice. Well, try that out. And and actually, I will tell you, the more I try it out and with doses of the history of race, it really fires me up even more. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, and I think, right. And that's part of what I think I see is as the path you're trying to either blaze or, you know, shape in, in some degree, because part of the book, how to be an anti race, anti racist, in some sense is a critique, but again, I would say it's a generative critique of kind of more conventional or established current forms of anti-racism. And that 
I, I hear in your work, and particularly some of the essays you just sent me, a, a kind of a working hypothesis, and I don't, I don't know if we can, again, quantify this yet, but there's in part a hypothesis that the current discourse on anti-racism is having to some degree a silencing effect on maybe white-identified progressive populations that in their heart want to be involved, but for some reason maybe aren't taking the actionable steps to be more involved. Um, is that a perception that seems accurate to what you see? Or Yeah, I, w- I would also add that the um, harder-edged dimensions of that anti-racist movement also exclude black identified folks from the conversation as well, who have a different perspective. Um, By the way, I want to just acknowledge that you're um, doing some experiments with these terms of black identified, white identified. It's important to honor and acknowledge that you're doing that right now. How's that going? Um, In my own little world. uh, And I I live more or less by myself with my partner in, 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 in Maine. um, It's going to be going pretty well, but I, I've definitely been um, so. That's that's what you're mentioning is is an influence that your book has had on me, and 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 I definitely wanted to get into that of how our habits of speech probably unconsciously reinforce the as what Larry Ward was saying, the perception of seeing race as real. So, you know, this is what I one of the things I took out of your book that when we we say, oh, that's a white person, that's a black person. You know, we, we all say it. And, and, and in a sense, that's why racialization is in the air that we breathe. Mm. And that speaking that way, while it, yes, it honors an ancestry and culture and ethnicity and shared history, it also sort of preserves the devil at the heart of it, which is, is the racist category. Definitely. Yes. Let me piggyback on that. And and the it preserves the devil and it also has a silencing function, which is as does the harder edged anti-racist movement, period. Right. And so part of. Could, well, can you, I wanted to ask you about that. What, what, what do you, in your view, what is the silencing mechanism? Yeah, well, mechanism. Or, or what is the dynamic? I mean, I'm, the dynamic. Because well, it, it, and it's and it's a. It, I think a lot of it is self-silencing. There's a fear. Uh, I know there's like, there's issues of cancellation. If you don't, you know, and if you're, if you, I think you wrote this well, and it's the feeling I had before I saw you read it. That it basically says if you don't line up with the, the established correct view of anti-racism, by definition, you are therefore a racist. I know that's a little tinker toy, right? But well, there. Yes, let's generalize this. So why do people stop speaking up about things, period, about anything? So in any group, family, or relationship, if you bring up something and the other person goes, you know, kind of like, why are you bringing that up? Or they say, that's wrong. Or they say, how dare you say that? Do I feel like bringing that up again? About any topic, Right. This is, and there's, it's the brain scientists can explain this better than I can. Right. But there's, it activates our threat response system Mm -hmm. and we recoil. And the reason this matters, this is 
maybe one of the most important things that's coming up for me right now is that there are literally millions, if not tens of millions, of white-identified Americans who want to do something good and were activated after the murder of George Floyd, who are not because they're silenced. And so for anybody who wants to actually um, improve Americans' lives, including Black-identified lives, we need this group of people to be able to speak up. And what I've been noticing, small subset of people, but uh, Greg and I and Jewel Kinch Thomas led a course for a year where we introduced people to this concept of deracializing people, is that a lot of white identified folks felt a sense of freedom. They felt unburdened. And by unburdened, I mean, feel, felt more free to um, act and speak up and combat racism once they began to go, yeah, this biological race thing is just kind of crazy. So if we can actually, um, if, so one other answer to the question why is to unleash energies for people who are want to, quote, do, quote, good. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know if you knew this, but I'm an acupuncturist, or I, I used to be an acupuncturist for a long time. I did time. not know that. And so when you said, you know, you hit the right acupuncture Talk point, me, and you, you can open up, you know, you, you got it right. There's, I mean, you can have a blockage on the channel, you can have a blockage in a particular area. And right, there's a manipulation of a point, or which in this case, I would say the point represents a, a, a kind of stagnation in the model of what anti-racism means that you're you're saying has a, the functional effect of and, and we haven't really gotten into what it is yet but that's causing that functional effect of silencing but you know if i were to speak to it for myself i'd say in post george floyd it's a sense and i had this in college too when i got politically active it was a sense of okay i am clearly a privileged member of the the, the oppressor class and in acknowledging that position, it behooves me to step back and allow other voices to be platformed. That's the kind of language that okay. we would hear. Um, and, and, and in a sense, seed my thoughts and feelings and opinions about things to, to let those that have been oppressed have, have the platform and, and offer um, their voice on the direction that should go. I think there's something there's something to that, and in, in your was yes. in your book you you even share how I think it was after po, po, uh, George Floyd got killed, um, there was a a handwritten sign on one of your neighbors' uh, porches that said, "I will never understand your experience, but I will stand with you. Um, all, I will always stand with you." Yeah, and well, I think know, and, yes. and and there's there's something about that that it's sort of a, a, a stance that says, I'm so sorry, this is so awful, I get how awful this is, and probably the best thing I can do is just keep quiet and, and, and let others speak. There's yeah, sort of a so you're answering, your, you're providing another answer to the question of what is the mechanism of silencing. Mm -hmm. It's an injunction to stay silent, right, to pass the mic. And I think it's actually good to pass the mic, right? But to never have the mic in your hand at all, how are you going to do anything? Right. So again, it's taking something 
and applying all aboutism. It's all about them. This other group having a mic. You can't have it at all. You can't. You shouldn't speak. You should be quiet. You should always defer um, to what black anti-racists uh, say. The fact that a lot of folks disagree, like how do you decide which one to listen to and agree with? That's a different question. So this is a silencing mechanism, and I don't think it's necessary in order to show respect, um, hold space, listen, be curious about other folks' experience, etc., and pass the mic. I think it's you can do that while also having your own voice. And I think it's really important at this point to notice another thing that's related that is silencing, and it's a double bind. It's pass the mic. Silence is violence. Right. Whoa. Wait, what am I supposed to do? And if I'm given two contradictory injunctions, all the more reason to remain silent because I'm going to break one of them by speaking. And if I'm quiet, maybe no one will notice I'm here. Right. No, you just put, calling it a double bind was, was, was very accurate. I think that, that there and a double bind is, is just, as you said, two contradictory statements that you can't do either. So, you know, psychology, the classic one is a road sign that says, don't read me. If you read the road sign, you're doing what the sign says not to do. And, 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 and right. So I think, I think the double bind nature creates a kind of a paralyzed nervous system and psyche um, as a result. And I think what I felt from reading you, and, and it had that effect on me, which is a, you know, I mean, this is the third conversation I've had a race on the podcast. The first one, I was sweating bullets, um, even though it was for the friend of mine. Um, but I was incredibly uncomfortable talking about it. Second one was with Greg and I had listened enough to him. I was like, okay, I, I think I know where he's coming from. This feels, I feel more comfortable in this kind of conversation. Um, but what you offered as an extension of Greg around just, you know, this, and I can't even say quite why yet. And I'd be curious why you think this is the case. Um, but really internalizing the delusion of the category of race does paradoxically free up I mean, there's a there's a there's a much more energy to want to address these inequalities because they are themselves a result of that that delusional view if the, even if the delusional view is is kind of i think unconsciously reinforced or unconsciously allowed to continue that unconscious lens becomes much, it's much easier to be tacitly complacent in the face of inequality because it's, it, it can be un- unconsciously justified. Well, it's, we, we do have these different races and, and, you know, maybe some people are just like that. Yeah. Well, that's really important. Let me address both of those points. Um, the maybe we do have different races. Um, second, but the first thing um, has to do with, you know, why does this free up energy and I don't know. Uh, What I am aware of in my own experience is when something that everyone says is true, 
that is part of a very stressful dynamic, I learn is not true, it tends to free up my energy. I don't know why that is, but. So say that uh, again. When... And any, anything where there's a, there's a superstitious, widely held belief in something. And that belief undergirds a series of stressful conversations and interactions. Mm-hmm. So that every time I think about the topic, I collapse, I sweat, I, uh, my eyebrows furrow, which is one of the things that I do, whatever it is. And then I go, wait a second. One of the key things undergirding that thing that makes me stress is false. Yeah, that has an impact. It does. I do feel a sense of relaxation. I don't know why a psychologist or brain scientist could explain it, but I think it goes beyond this. This is just this deracializing is an example of that. And it'd be interesting to see as more people try this on as I have and you have what their experiences are. And that's why um, your background as an acupuncturist makes you particularly well qualified to be one of the ones spreading this, right? Right, right. Well, you know, coming back to the, the silencing, it, I think there, I mean, they're really, even for me as someone, I would say I politically, I'm on the left. I don't know how far on the left I am, but I'm definitely on the left. I've definitely had, uh, support progressive agenda. Um, but I, I'm not, a, 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 you know, without fear, of, I, at certain points, I was not without fear of being canceled. Mm-hmm. Um, if I, if I made the wrong, if I, if I, if I raised a critique of something that was seen as orthodox, I, you know, I could see that if I had a bigger platform, which I don't, but if I had a bigger platform, I could get into trouble. And, and I think that, it's not just the, you know, the the fear of cancellation, but it's the it's the it's the you want to call it a slur of being racist, and and I think that fear of being called out as racist does quell a lot of energy that could be channeled um, if someone felt like internally. Because you know, John McWhorter will say, you know, you know, we just have to take our stand, and people are going to call us racist, and we just have to get used to it. And and you know, I can kind of take his point, but it still doesn't. I don't think it ameliorates or mitigates the 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 real the very real fear fear and hurt around that, Um, which isn't to say you know I I can't take 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 shots, Um, but if the if the intention is to build more collaborative coalitions to really sort of bring about actionable change, um, I think what you're describing is like that energy needs to be freed up. And if it's, if it's blanketed by a fear of race, being charged with being racist or being canceled, um, or just not being put like aligned with all the tenets of a particular movement, um, that the potential for that coalition building is 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 compromised. Yeah, Let, let's talk for a minute about being called racist, because um, just to acknowledge again, it hurts. Um, who says it has an impact on how much it hurts, mm-hmm. and one of the ways that I hold this is that. And I picked this up from Ibram X. Kendi, ironically, although I'm not sure he meant it this way, but 
from his book, uh, Stamped from the Beginning, which is his big history, history of racist ideas. It's like five, 600 pages, which I read. Um, he talks about there being racist ideas, not racist people. I think I may have misinterpreted him, but the way I interpreted it was that there is no A equals B, that a person can be racist. And why, why are we doing that? Instead, we ought to trace the ideas that spread and infect various people and go, and that the ideas are everywhere. And so I really bought that concept. I really, it really landed for me because I began to see, I do have racist ideas and sexist and homophobic and you name it. I mean, I, and are they mine? No, they're circulating. They're circulating. And my responsibility is to catch myself and make them an object of awareness so they don't have me and cause me to do a lot of distorting things. My responsibility is also just to name the fact that it's happening. Yes, this is happening. I'm having this idea. It's, it's coming and it's going. And so now I haven't been called racist many times, so we'll have to put this to the test when it happens. Mm. But uh, if somebody says you're racist, I think to myself, if what you mean is that racist ideas occasionally pass through my mind, yeah, that's true. And if what you mean is that, as Resma Menachem writes about in my grandmother's hands, I have racialized body trauma due to past experience. Yeah, I have that too. Um, but I don't actually even understand what you mean when you say that I am racist. So it doesn't bother me. Again, I'm also not that well-known. You know the famous Amos cookie? You know there was a cookie called the Unknown Jerome? I don't know either. I'm, I'm, out of, I'm in the dark. Enlighten me. The here. Unknown Jerome was an actual cookie out of Los Angeles. Famous Amos was a, is a cookie or was a cookie that was well-known. Unknown Jerome was less well-known, but it was a very good cookie out of Los Angeles. And I think of myself as an unknown Jerome. Why does anybody want to attack me? But that could change. And so I'm just saying, who knows? Mm -hmm. This, But this is a view of racism I just want to share with folks that maybe it would be helpful to you, is that there are no racist people. Even David Duke, is he a racist person? Well, closer to the most. <laughs> but he's got a lot of racist ideas that own him, and he has it embedded in his body. So anyways, that's just how I handle that. And so I don't, I don't know. To me, there's too much going on in the world to be, to be quiet. And maybe I'm just lucky because I have, you know, clients that maybe don't listen to this or care about it. And hopefully they're not going to cancel me and I've got income coming in from them, yada, 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 yada. So I'm not that concerned about being canceled. The concern is real. And what I hope we can do is as more people speak up and don't get heart hurt, other folks can be like, oh, I can do that too. Mm -hmm. And it's just to answer your other question, it's not just me being saying something and the other person going, eh, it's me seeing people that I admire get shouted down, canceled, penalized. That instills fear. Sure. And that's how totalitarian regimes, you know, function is they they do these very public displays of shaming and killing, and then everyone else is afraid to uh to to act 
Yeah, one of the distinctions that I took out of uh, Larry Ward's Larry Ward's book, America's Racial Karma, was the the distinction between racist intent and being subject to a racialized worldview. So you can, you know, I think as you're describing it, like when you say you have you've you've ex, you experience racist ideas come and go, misogynistic ideas come and go. I, I I know what you mean that these these ideas, these thoughts are in the in in the, in the air in a sense. They're in our culture, and as subjects raised within this culture, those 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 ideas are going to populate through our mind. The question is, what do we do with those? What 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 stance do we take in relationship to them? Um, and I know a lot of like progressive people will say, "Well, I I'm not racist because I don't I don't sign on with like this political or white nationalism or this this very conservative uh, position." Um, so I don't see myself as racist. But in saying that, they I don't think it, like many folks really see the depth to which the racialization has occurred, that they are conditioned by the racialization of the, of the world we're in now. And that, right. dis- I mean, that distinction yeah. for me was like the beginning That's of great. starting to feel more comfortable. Like, okay, yes, I don't, I don't see myself having racist intent at all, um, but I can, I can absolutely see the racialization in my, in my being um, and the re- racialization in other beings and, and, and how that is... Um, you know, a driver in, in, in kind of continuing this thing to be fed or fueled. I mean, that distinction opened up possibilities for you. Yeah. 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 And, and then the further one of like really uh, kind of bringing into the heart of me, you know, the, the refutation of, of race is the biological idea of race. Like that, which I, again, I knew from my undergraduate years, Way back. you know, I knew it, but it, it, it hadn't, I didn't know how, again, I didn't know how to integrate. And I know you, you said that you were still in the process of learning how to integrate this, but, um, and that's where I kind of want to, would like to ask you about like paths forward or practices that you see. And maybe we can talk about that more, but, um, I think it takes, it is, it's, it's, it's a work in progress and how to, how does a culture, Larry Ward used the phrase, you know, he compared his rose bush growing off his deck, that as it grows, it mantles, and it simultaneously dismantles parts of itself. Mm-hmm. And, and I like that idea of a, of, a, of a system that's growing and expanding in a healthy direction while dismantling aspects that are, you know, problematic and, 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 and punishing. Um, so where am I now? I feel like I, I do think this this issue that you're bringing this this core the, the core theme is deracialization while and of people without and this is the thing so it's not confused without decentering the conversation and the topic and the and the legacy of racism. Right. Right. So then the question is, okay, if the premise is that that racialization 
continues to embed and reinforce the category of race that's at the root. It's the, it's the, it's the poisonous root at the root of this tree. How do you see, or what, what ideas do you have, and I have some ideas myself, but how do you see individuals actively acting upon that intention to deracialize and and how does that what, what would that look like hmm. well your your first question one of your first questions about why is really important um, and it's important because doing this is, is, is can be challenging so first step for someone listening is to ask yourself well, why would I want to do this and hopefully in the conversation so far we've given, you some reasons, but it's good to know, here's why I want to try this. And um, to me, one of the best reasons is this acupuncture point. It's like, let's try something to try and shift the conversation, starting with ourselves. Can I just jump in there with the acupuncture point thing too? Because you know, when there's a, when, when a point or an area of a channel, which energy flows through is blocked, there's a disconnection within the system. So the holistic system has, has junctures of disconnection where there's this disjointed um, flow. The energy isn't flowing well through it. So I think what you're proposing, like if we, if we can open up that, that, that blockage in our conversation or in our worldview, then greater connectivity will occur amongst like-minded individuals to that that conceivably would lead towards greater social change. Wonderfully put. Yeah. yeah. Wonderfully put. Unblocking more energy. Um, more connection. More positive. More connection. Thank you. More connection. Yeah. Um, well, I just want to note that, as I, as I said before, we're using some of the language that we're recommending to people. And it might just seem like a, a difference of a word or two and, Number one, why does that matter? And number two, it's kind of irritating and annoying. <laughs> yeah. Say white identified instead of white. Um, but it, what it does, it's a way of taking a stand of distancing myself from um, biological race. And just to note on the, along those lines, you know, we can talk about, let's just say, um, getting pulled over by police. And I don't know the numbers, but let's just say the number is that black identified people are five times more likely to be pulled over than white identified. And there's other categories too. Let's just say that that's the case. Um, first of all, let's note that, wow, that's, that's a disparity. Um, why is that? What is it about the, the um, hiring and training of police officers and the culture in the police and our larger culture that makes that possible. And what would be some ways that local police forces around the United States right now are already trying to shift that so that black identified people and white identified people would be pulled over at the same rate. And we can ask the same question about arrest. There are disparities in the arrest records. Mm -hmm. And then there's incarcerate, you know, we can go along. Now notice just for everyone listening, did it, does it feel like I, that we just ignored disparity? No. 
So just to notice, we just did a little, I just spoke for a minute, all the same stuff, right? With just the same passion, but actually I have a little more oomph to me than I might otherwise. Because what I realize when I say black identified is that they're getting pulled over for, um, because their folks are being identified with something that doesn't exist. Right. And that kind of bothers me even more uh, and fires me up even more. So to answer the question, one of the ways to do this is to try out some of these terms, just try them out for size and uh, see if you can have the conversations that you want to have with them. I actually feel more comfortable having the conversations than I used to before. But that's because I'm tired of essentializing black and white. Just Mm -hmm. doesn't feel helpful. So now that I can do this, I can be like, okay, let's talk about that. Let's talk about wealth. Um, And and second thing. So you want to you want to interject? Yeah, I just want to interject that you know you make you make a a, a nuanced point in your writing that I want to just make sure it gets articulated here, which is that, and I would be the same that I will. You know, whoever I'm with, I will refer to them however they want me to refer to them. If they want me to call them white and black or Asian, I'm happy to use the terminology that uh, that they of their choosing. I think what you're getting at is how language reinforces the lens of perception unconsciously, uh, and and that's what you're like you're you're putting you're kind of focusing on in 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 terms of making suggestions for slight adjustments in in speech and this is you know i i bristled a lot when i was a kid against political correctness and and kind of the excesses of that and and kind of how much it i would say even just squashed humor in 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 daily life um i don't feel this i don't i don't have a like a a politically correct allergy or a woke allergy to the language you're describing because i i do think (laughs) I mean, it is factually speaking more truth. Yes. And in a certain sense, there's a way that I think there's an element of truth to this that, that will helpfully, hopefully set us free a little bit more and free up from the racialization. Yeah. Let me take the other side of that, of your point, uh, a different perspective, which is if there were 10 million people all saying black identified and white identified, you might be a little more concerned. <laughs> How do you mean? Greg, wait, wait. If it's just, I'm saying, if it's just Greg and me and a few other people, there's not a lot of social pressure on you to use those terms. Right. So you might not be too concerned. Yep. Um, I just want to acknowledge that if we're successful and lots of people start using it, you might we might feel that pressure. Um, but the other part of it is just to accept all the different ways that people speak and to model it by example rather than coercive forcing people, penalizing people for saying things the wrong way. Now, I have to admit, in my paper, I, I, make, I, I uh, wrote a sentence that I may have to change in the next version. And the sentence goes something like this. Um, every time I say, call a person black or white, a white supremacist somewhere is smiling. Now, that could be considered... Uh, a way of reigning in language. I may want to change that. Mm-hmm. I wrote that for the obvious effect, mm-hmm. right? To show how it's reinforced as an ideology that most people saying it wouldn't agree with, not to rein in um, 
Renan speech. Um, in any case, part of the, um, just to get back to this, your, let's go back to your original question, which was, what are some things that we can do differently, I think? Yeah. 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 So, 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 so yeah, yeah. I mean, speech habits are, are one that you focus on in the book that I, I uh, appreciate. And I, and I want to say, I also appreciate how um, open to change and transparent around change and, 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 and revision you are. I guess that's the word. It's like you're, you're revising your book as it goes. And, and, and so, so like, so there was examples of the speech pattern that you gave, like to, for example, Rather than saying someone's black or someone's white, you could say someone's nominally black, someone's nominally white, someone's so-called uh, so white, so-called black, racial. I don't know if you said racialized white, racialized. racialized sure. Um, I, th and I can see how some, like for example, the phrase "so-called" would instantly be a, a, a problematic phrase uh, if it because it, it could sound like you're canceling their whole historical cultural experience and 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 that's not what we want we're trying to do um so i hear you playing with what what language like, sort of strikes there's the spirit of what you're after and rather than creating more of right a, i mean if somebody gets um raises an objection or gets angry and it makes sense to me i'm going to adjust mm -hmm. and I'm not even sure anyone objected, but I just imagined someone objecting to me saying so-called black people or black Americans. And I realize that's too easily interpreted as denying black American culture. It's just, so why do it? Right. right? So-called sounds like you're belittling somebody, which is not my intention. I'm, I'm still going to, I'm still using so-called white people because I'm anybody who thinks that there's a, a great white culture that I'm uh, <laughs> diminishing. I'm, I'm okay with that, them being upset. Right. <laughs> for now. <laughs> um, so these micro habits are, these conversational micro habits are, yeah, they're a way to start. There's something, they're only one of many things we can be doing. But if you think about all the ways that we currently reinforce, so start with this question. How, what are the ways that I currently reinforce biological race? Almost all of them are in the words that I say and write and how I listen to other people. Yep. So if all the ways I'm reinforcing that notion, almost all of them are linguistic, maybe ling including linguistics in my response would be a way to go. I'm not just making this up out of whole air. And just let me say one more thing. Maybe it's time that my progressive postmodern friends who deconstruct everything, maybe it's time to deconstruct biological race. Mm -hmm. That would be one good thing to add to the list. Yeah. And let's not reconstruct it. Let's reconstruct identity, American identity, not race, because we always want to reconstruct. If all we do is tear apart, there's nothing left. So we want to reconstruct. What does it mean to be an American? What does it mean to be a human being? We don't have to reconstruct race. Yeah. You know, as you're speaking through that, one of the, the, the frameworks that's been kind of running through my mind is comes back to Buddhism in that the Buddha allegedly awoke to some realization, which we can get into if we want, but we, realization into the nature of things that liberated his mind and uh, from suffering, from the mechanism of suffering. And um, from that realization, he, he, 
described having discovered the Eightfold Path, which is an integrated, not, not, a, not a, uh, a stepwise path, but it's a kind of an integrated path or an integrated wheel, integrative wheel with eight aspects that when they're all developed lead to a, um, an individual experience of, of less suffering and, and a contribution to society, a, a less suffering society. And the, the path begins with view. Like, what is your view of, of the world? From view emanate intentions. Uh, what, do we what, what actions do we intend to take in a way that, that, that accord with, the, with that view that we have? But speech, like wise action, wise speech, wise livelihood, these are the kind of the moral dimensions of actualiz actualization from that view. And I would say just in general, our speech is where a lot of human suffering uh, manifests. And if there's implicit things in speech that are perpetuating this karmic wheel of racialization, I think I, I, I fully agree with you. I think we need, not in a police sort of way, but in, in, a, in an explorative, creative way, need to figure out how to let that That the fuel within us that continues that to let that die out, and I, and I do think the the habits of speech are important. But you also talk about you know reading and 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 um, you know kind of familiarizing oneself with history and and, and a multiplicity of views as as part of that. Um, but I don't know. If it, yeah, read more about this. Yeah, read more about practice. Right. Well. It, it, it does help to understand how biological racial classification um, made racism possible. I think that's helpful to understand a little bit of the history of that. And Well, the other part of the history, and maybe you can speak to this a little bit, is what I wasn't fully aware of until I read you, was the reminder that, you know, most people, I think, currently, like, that care about this think that slavery, racism, racism, uh, slavery came out of racism. That slavery, that 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 the racism created slavery, for, instead of the other way around. Right, and even Ibram X. Kendi likes this, and others like to speak about this because then you can say it's about power and economics, and it really was. I mean. Slavery was an economic institution. And I, this is really important to say because I have forgotten this. Mm -hmm. In the, particularly in the United States, it's so easy to forget this. First of all, people from around the world have been enslaved and enslaved with all colors of skin throughout time. So let's decenter American slavery for a second. Um, and one of the reasons to do that is that even when pro even progressive and liberals, white, white identified folks, think of slavery, there's still this feeling of, well, Let's see, the white folks did it and the black folks were uh, enslaved. So maybe there's a reason why. There must be something biological there, hmm. some inferiority. It's a very subtle level of racism. When you actually look at the history of slavery around the world, and this is an aside to your question, and you realize, oh, yeah, pretty much every kind of person has been enslaved. Not every, but light-skinned people in the United States. Mm -hmm. slaves, indentured servants, you go, yeah, I can let go of that racist idea. Okay. But to get down to your point, there was an institution 
of slavery. There were also indentured servants. There's a mix of people affected by both. They'd gone on for decades before the Virginia legislature came up with the notion of whiteness. And and mm-hmm. whiteness then was used for years to justify it. But slavery existed first. You know, it was a way to make money off the backs of people that um, weren't getting paid and were getting abused, if not worse. Um, but like, how do you justify that? So one reason is you have to justify it later on when you have all men are created equal. How do you reconcile that with slavery? Well, if they're not men and women, if they're subhuman, if they're a different race, then all bets are off. All forms of brutality are possible. So see how pernicious this is. Then the second thing, which I learned about from Greg, was um, a rebellion, Bacon's Rebellion, I believe, late 17th century, so 100 years before the Declaration of Independence, where a bunch of people with different colored skin, slave, indentured servants, had a rebellion. And then the plantation owners are like, oh, we can't let this happen. All these different people getting together with different colored skins to oppose the power structure. We need to create a category of whiteness to separate. Hmm. And so they did. And they invented the legal category of whiteness in the 16, maybe 70s or 80s. Now, everybody now knows that 1619 is when the first enslaved people, who then became enslaved Americans, in my opinion, came to the shore. So we're talking 50, 60 years of slavery. Then, then, then folks invent race and racism to justify it. Now, other stuff was happening across the pond, so to speak racial theorists in Europe. But yes, that came that came second. So learning about that, learning that even listening here and going, wow, I did not realize that yeah. is a great practice. Can I mention a few books? So one of them is Fatal Invention by Dorothy Roberts, which is essentially how genetics has reinvented biological race. Um, a second one is Cast by Isabel Wilkerson, who won the Pulitzer Nobel or the National Book Award or both. Fantastic journalist. Um, Her book, Cast, is about looking at the United States as a caste system based on a false premise. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's Nell Irving Painter, The Invention of White People. Title alone will tell you what's inside of that book. And that gets even in more depth into the history of racial classification, and how it uh, traveled and affected folks. So looking into that could be um, particularly uh, particularly relevant. Uh, can I, let me say one more thing before I, I knew you got a lot to say, but I really need to make this point about language. I'm go- I have a friend of mine who's become quite a well-respected spiritual teacher. We had this debate 20 years ago, and it hasn't ended. I have been emphasizing the power of speech, huh. language to shape reality. And he would always say to me, Aramiel, what about intentions? What about what's happening on the interior? And his career path has gone on to work, a lot of work in interiors. And I, my starting point is on speech, speaking and listening. And so the conversation between us continues. But what I want to say about this is that if you feel like, if you're hearing me and, and are thinking, Amiel, this is about a lot more than just the language you use. It's about your interior. Here's what I would say to you. Practice speaking differently. Notice what happens on the interior. (laughs) 
No, don't. It's and if you need to talk to your therapist or teacher or coach about that, fantastic. Let that be the starting point because it's also the end point. It's also what other people are going to notice that you've shifted. You start there, see what happens, and then work with all the interior stuff and then see if you can shift the exterior stuff at the same time. Yeah, no, I, it's, I mean, I, uh, we're, I know we're both integrally informed, integrally interested people. So it's not an either, or it's an, and both. And how do we synthesize and how do we include, include as much of it as we can? And I, I totally agree that I do see, you know, I'm involved in the, you know, the kind of the personal interior, interior development world of yoga and meditation. And I see that as, as an important complement to what we're talking about. I, but I also agree with the speech piece and I'm, I'd be curious to hear over time how, what phrase or phrasing takes root or is most widely accepted. Like right now, my prediction or my sense of it is that in speaking about to, 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 to kind of expunge the category of race from speech would, will involve saying things like someone so-and-so is a racialized white person or racialized as a black person that that because that speaks directly to what what it is that that's a it's a it's a socially socialized construct mm -hmm. and it names it for what it is um and then it, it probably will, will invite question well, why are you saying that and that 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 opens up a door rather than i don't i don't see people saying oh you're racist if you say someone's racialized as or maybe, would you see it that way? Like, We'll find out. We'll find out, yeah. I haven't been accused of that yet. Uh, we'll, you know, we'll find out. And the question that I'm inferring from what you said is some folks might be thinking like, what good is this going to do? How are we going to, can we really eliminate biological race from our culture? And my answer is, A, I don't know, and B, this is in the category of a lot of things like climate change and artificial intelligence, where things aren't looking so good, but that doesn't keep us from standing in our commitments and being the person we want to be. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and maybe on that note, um, well, first off, in your book, which I will have a link to in the show notes, and, and I will encourage people to, to look into that, uh, how to be an anti-race, anti-racist. Um, Free, no charge, just your email address. Just your email address. And it's, and it's not, I mean, I've tried to read a lot of books on this stuff myself and, uh, I found yours very readable and, but, but trenchant, like very, very on point cogent and, and very readable. Um, but the broader piece is that kind of what you just hinted with climate change and, and AI that, and this is this, I'm borrowing this kind of concern from my friend, Bob Wright, that as a species, as the one race species, we are facing existential threats within the next 10 or so years that will require globalized cooperation at, 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 with some level of global governance to address these if we're going to collaborate well enough to succeed at combating these threats. And for him, one of the things that stands in the way, in his analysis, one of the things that stands in the way of realizing that global cooperation is the psychology of tribalism. And that takes place at the national stage, tribalism between nations. 
Um, but domestically, it definitely forms in, in terms of the polar, polarization within, our, within the United States and parts of Europe that we're seeing. And I would say in the United States, the, the wedge of racism or the issue of racism is you know, reinforcing or, or I'm trying to think how to phrase this correctly, is part of the, the polarization. And, and, and I, and I'm, I want to see how we can, you know, I want, we need to meet the save the species at the global level, but we, in order to do that, we have to heal enough at the individual, collective, domestic level for that, that, that broader um, opportunity or possibility of, of cooperation at the global level to occur. So, um, you know, it's a little bit like in the Game of Thrones, the White Walkers are coming and there's a bunch of tribal warfare going on on the, on the southern side of the wall, not realizing that the, I don't know if you know the story, but like that there's this existential threat coming that we're, it's going to affect everybody. So um, I just, I, th I see you as, you know, the, a, a social acupuncturist of sorts <laughs> trying to, to um, identify these kind of, points that are, are, are bound up in frozen energy um, and, and, and helping release that. So um, I guess I just want to, I'm deeply indebted to you and I really want to thank you for your contribution so far. I want to encourage all listeners to, to check you out. Um, I know you're on Twitter because um, I'm nominally on Twitter <laughs> myself, um, but people can find you on Twitter. It's, um, is it just your handle, your name, Amiel Handelsman? I hope so. I I'm on Twitter more than I used to be, but not enough to know my handle. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Put okay. that in the uh, no more I'm on Twitter. I'm doing it more because I'm finding some really interesting people on Twitter, and I'm not getting a lot of hatred my way yet. So whatever that phenomenon is with Twitter, uh, I'm guessing anyone who is listening and would interact with me would only make bring more love so please let's connect yeah well who knows maybe even after this conversation you know you'll be you'll be re <laughs> removed from twitter <laughs> um but um yeah i just want to thank you a lot i really I, well, thank was, you it, it, I, it, i'm just want to say i'm was really happy that you went in and read the a little book read the uh the ebook and and that you shared the impact it had on you, which really is one reason why I'm doing what I'm doing in life in general is for someone else to be like, yeah, this had an impact on me. Yeah, no, that definitely. made my day. And, and also for, you know, inviting me on the show and, um, and also really reading so closely, you know, and paying such close attention um, to the finer distinctions, bringing them into the conversation. Because I know... I can't remember this stuff. When I used to have my own podcast, I'd interview people about their books and they'd be like, wait a second, what pay, wait, what are you saying? Right. And now I know what that's like because it's, you really took the time to get to know it. And that made for a really great, a great chat. Yeah, no, it's, it's a, it's a very good, I mean, I hope the book uh, sees a more f fleshed out. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's taught, it's a very taught essay. And I think um, I'm hoping that, sees a, a broader publication at some point. Well, if I could find a publisher, I'd be happy to, yeah. to work on it more. Um, so thank you so much. And 
And you know, one thing that for listeners that are still with us, you bring up a point in the book that I maybe want to conclude with, which is an important reminder that one of the things that I feel like froze my energy on this particular topic of race and racism is the kind of the, the polarized camps of, of where you could find alignment. You can either be an anti-racist or you can kind of be in the John McWhorter category. And it's, you know, there's, it's, like a, it's, it's sort of framed as an either or predicament. And you, what you do really nicely in the book is remind people of a kind of a tenet of integral theory, which is what's true and useful in someone's you know, articulation or their position or their statement or their book or their ide- ideology and what's not maybe so skillful or helpful. And so you're, you, are, you are reading things and you're encouraging your readers to, to use that kind of lens of, of discernment. What is, what is true? What is, what is beneficial in this and what can we maybe not uh, take on? And I would just encourage people to, to hold that when they do look into your book and look, at, look into all these these, these, That's these another sources. great habit to have, yeah. and it does free up energy um, yeah. as well. Yeah, and it just well, it it also invites you know personal engagement and um, not, not just agency but responsibility. Mm, respon- you know? It does invite responsibility because you're at you're not just like agree, disagree. Right. You have to go wait, what's true and useful here, and then all right, what's missing, and how would I supplement it? Like it. It calls for a little work yep. uh, for the reader and listener, which helps to grow. Helps us to grow. It helps us to grow and helps us prevent prevent people from just parroting. And I I feel like on both sides, and, I'm, and when I mean when I say both sides, I mean the far maybe the progressive left and the center right. I'm not including the far right, but like the center right to progressive left. Both sides there um, really get into kind of boilerplate slogans. And, and, and that's what I think is also contributing to the, the, the kind of the ossification of the conversation and, and this integral view that you're bringing forward without necessarily even talking about integralism, um, I think creates, creates a much better path or channel. So to better flow, to better connection, to more healing. Connection, connection, yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah. And so thank you, Amiel. Um, I really appreciate it. I hope to get you back on the show at some point. That'd be great. Okay, thank you so much for your attention today. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Amiel as much as I did. Um, There's a lot in this. And, you know, personally, again, I have learned so much from him and his colleague, Greg Thomas. And um, just want to give a shout out to them and their work. Do check out uh, the links in the show notes for Amiel's free, I should say that again, it's a free ebook, How to Be an Anti-Racist, Anti-Racist. There's also two blogs that are sort of excerpted from the book, um, published on Greg Thomas's site, Tune Into Leadership, that are linked in the show notes, um, as well as Amiel's personal website for his executive coaching business. So um, do check all that out and do let me know what you think. Um, I, in my last Dharma talk on the podcast called Deracializing Consciousness, I tried to apply some of the themes that I learned from Amiel and, and, and talk about how I think uh, meditative practice, particularly the kind of the, the Buddhist-based mindfulness practice, um, 
uproots the illusion of being an essential self or that the self has essential qualities. And that anti-essentialism that we awaken to um, in, in Buddhist practice, I think, pairs beautifully with the anti-essentialism of, or seeing essentialism in others. So when we, when we de-essentialize ourselves, we also de-essentialize others. That's similar to, or it's part of the same process of de-racializing ourselves and de-racializing others. At least that's the way I'm framing it. Um, so check out that podcast if you're interested too. And I just want to, again, thank you for your attention. Thank you for your uh, practice here. And I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Take good care.